one of the first jobs I ever had was bussing tables at an Outback Steakhouse. I was a senior. Why are y'all laughing? I was a senior in high school. I think I was trying to make some money for a trip, maybe. So they hired me to bus tables at Outback. And it was a wonderful three weeks. I didn't last very long. Um, you know, I didn't love the job in the first place. wasn't wasn't my dream job, you know. But I can remember the 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 moment I can remember when I decided I needed to take my talents elsewhere. I was it was at ten thirty one night. I had worked a double shift. I'd been there since ten thirty that morning, and I was taking the garbage out, throwing the garbage into the big dumpster out behind the restaurant, and the dumpster started to overfill. And so the manager looked at me and said, why don't you climb up in there and stomp that stuff down? <laughs> to which I replied, I think the Lord is calling me to another opportunity. <laughs> um, we humans have a complicated relationship with work. We always have. Because on one hand, work is a good thing. It's an essential thing. It's essential for life. And yet, at the same time, it can be deeply frustrating, challenging, taxing, and at times even worse. I mean, I, now, now think about this. In the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning of all things, God created Adam and Eve before things went to chaos with sin, and God gave them work. That was a declaration of God. Work is a good thing. When everything is perfect, work is still part of God's creation. That's good. But then sin entered the world when Adam and Eve defied God and went their own way, and God cursed them. This is from Genesis 3. Part of the curse of Adam was that he would work by the sweat of his brow, <clears throat> but that the ground would grow up thorns and thistles. That in a sense, the ground was going to fight back against us in our work. So at the same time, work is a good thing. It's a creation of God. It's essential for life. <clears throat> but at the same time, it's tainted. Work is under a curse. And therefore, it's always going to be for us <clears throat> a source of struggle and frustration. Okay, so the question is, if we follow Jesus, as followers of Jesus, how do we interact with work, with the workplace? Something that for us takes up maybe a third of our life. If we're working eight hours a day, then we're, we're spending a, a serious portion of our lives in the workplace. How do we approach it in a way that, that reflects Christian values that honors Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul right here in Colossians chapter 3 gives us a work ethic. Now, you may have learned your work ethic from, from your family, maybe from your parents or your grandparents. And if you did, it probably went something like this. You work hard, you work honestly, you do good work. It doesn't matter what kind of work you do as long as you do it well. That's how prior generations approached things. You know, increasingly, though, maybe in the last 30 years or so, we've taken a little bit of a turn culturally in terms of how we view work that we think work needs to be fulfilling, work needs to be meaningful. It's really not worth doing unless it makes you feel significant, unless it makes a difference. And therefore, what you do matters more, maybe more than it used to. It's not just a paycheck. It's not just family provision like it used to be. Well, how is a Christian supposed to navigate this? How are we supposed to approach work? Certainly, we don't take our cues just from the culture in anything. But how are we supposed to work? Well, Colossians 3 gives us a work ethic. Not, not just Paul taking work seriously, he does, we'll see it, but the way he turns everything to point to Jesus. 
Now, if you've been with us through Colossians, Paul has a habit of this. He takes everything, every practical thing in life, and he points it back to Christ. Last week, he told us about the family and how the family revolves around Jesus. Well, today, he turns his attention here to work, this all-important area of life that, frankly, a lot of times, we don't see our faith as connected in. And Paul's going to show us a better way. So right off the bat, you look at verse 22 with me. There's an elephant in the room that has to be addressed as to who Paul is writing to in this context. He's writing to slaves. That's the first word of the verse. Slaves, you see it, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, when we, for for me at least, and probably for you, when we see that word in the scripture, that word slaves, it's almost impossible for us to not think about the African-American slave trade, slavery. And we might look at something like this in the text. A lot of people do. They look at this and they recoil. They're horrified that the Bible would talk about it and in some sense even seem to promote it. You know, the sad truth is that there, there were a great many pastors who stood in pulpits and used verses like this to promote the slave trade, to justify it, to say that it was God-ordained. So it might be natural for us to see this and to become uh, disgusted, horrified, right? But but let let me give you some context here for just a second. The Apostle Paul is writing to the first century Roman Empire, where about half of the population were slaves. First century Rome, 50% of people were slaves. And those slaves included professions like teachers and doctors and craftsmen. It's not typically, it wasn't then how we typically associate that word slavery. Um, And at the time, it was a way for many people to actually avoid poverty and homelessness. If you were impoverished, if you were in great debt, you could actually work, you and your family could work your way out of debt and receive your necessary things for life. You wouldn't be put out on the street. And so slavery was a form of, it's a social construct that helped prevent slavery, uh, so to help prevent poverty and and homelessness. Um, Now, these slaves didn't have official rights of their own. I don't want to paint a rosy picture as if it was somehow a great thing. They didn't have official rights. That's what slavery means. But we shouldn't, when when we see Paul's words here in Colossians 3, we don't need to have the, the, the picture of people with their ankles chained together being driven into hard labor, or even the Israelites under the, the rule of the Egyptians in Exodus. This, this was not exactly the same thing. Well, all the same, why didn't Paul cry out against slavery? Why didn't he call it wrong? Isn't it wrong? Yes, slavery's wrong. Um, but again, remember, what, what Paul's doing here, he's writing a letter to the church. He's not writing a letter to to Caesar. Paul's goal here is not to overthrow the social structure, to overthrow the government. Paul is an apostle of Jesus, writing to the church, instructing them how to live in the real world. They are a vast minority in a much larger culture. They're not going to change the social structure. Paul's trying to help them to navigate the life that they've been given. Now, thankfully, there have been brave Christians who, on down the line in history, have used the Scripture to overthrow slavery, who saw the Scripture for what it rightly says, that all people are created in the image of God and therefore have equal dignity, that no man should be owned by another man. It was Christians who led that charge. 
But we shouldn't confuse Paul's actual intentions here. When he talks to slaves and masters, he's not advocating for the kind of slavery that, we, that we're probably picturing. Okay? It was a different world. And the last thing I'll say on this point before we get into the specifics, uh, our current work environment, as we know it in modern-day America, looks nothing like their work environment. Okay? They, they had no employment structures back then. They had no health benefits, health care system. They had no government regulations. It was a different world. So don't hear me try to translate slave as modern-day employee, as if they're exactly the same. They're not the same. They're not. But the principles are the same. And that's that's our point, and that's our focus for today. Uh, Now that we've established some context, the principles are the same. What Paul is giving to us that applies across the board for you and me is a work ethic, a way of viewing work that puts ourselves under the authority of God. So he's going to talk to those who are under authority of bosses, and he's going to talk to masters, bosses as well as those who have authority over others. But we see the ethic here as it takes shape in verse 22. So look, look with me at verse 22 again. Let's try to wade through the slave and master language here for the sake of the principles. He says, slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Okay? Uh, there is, Paul says, there is an external kind of service that exists to please people. So we could define it like this. Uh, you and I, we work hard when the boss is watching. We work hard when there's some tangible reward or promotion hanging out in front of us, available to us. But otherwise, maybe we only meet the minimum acceptable standard. We only meet the line of good enough, because good enough is good enough. We only do what's necessary to please our superiors and get by. As long as the boss is watching, of course, I grind, but otherwise, what difference does it make? Okay? That is a work ethic. That's a way of viewing work. And if the whole point of work was simply the exchange of services, then maybe that wouldn't be a problem. But we see here in the Scripture... We are new people in Christ. That's the whole point of the letter of Colossians. We are new people in Jesus. We are not what we were, and therefore we live to a new standard. And so rather than serving only to please people, you see what Paul says? He says, work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now that word sincerity, Paul wrote in the Greek language originally, that word for sincerity in Greek, it literally means singleness singleness. He says, work with a singleness of heart. When what you say you believe is integrated with how you actually live, that's called integrity, integration of belief and behavior. That's what Paul is calling us to here. A double heart or a double mind, which is a scriptural term, that makes us hypocrites. If I'm double-minded instead of single, then that, that, that gives me a mentality that says, you know, it doesn't really matter how I use my time at work as long as the boss doesn't find out. It doesn't matter if I take from my employer as long as I don't get caught. That's called a double mind. What I say I believe as a Christian does not affect business, does not affect my attitude at work. But sincerity of heart means you act with singleness, you act with integrity. What we say we believe is singular It's the same with how we behave in real life. Now, that sounds easy on the surface. I know it does. Have integrity. Work with integrity. 
But I know a lot of us get tempted in this area. And it goes way back, y'all. If you were anything like me, in elementary school, when the teacher left the classroom, some of y'all kept your head down and you kept working. Weren't you, weren't you great? The rest of us, the rest of us started looking around, goofing off, looking on other people's papers as to what was written down, right? Because the teacher's away. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Maybe uh, when, when the coach wasn't watching, you coasted through a drill. You didn't run full speed because you didn't have to. Um, it's, it's our nature to defy authority, to see what we can get away with. And that's why Paul really doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the earthly masters. He doesn't spend most of his time talking about pleasing your boss. Instead, Paul is pointing upward. He's pointing beyond that. You notice the motivation for integrity at the end of verse 22? What's our motivation for integrity? He says it's the fear of the Lord. You, you may have a harsh, demanding boss. You may have a very lenient boss. You may have no boss. But the buck doesn't stop there, according to Paul. The buck stops with God. That when we work, we're not working ultimately to please men. We're working out of the fear of the Lord. Now, that word fear really means awe and reverence. It's not, we, you don't work hard because you're afraid of God as if God's got his finger on a button somewhere. No, you work with awe and reverence. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying it's more than just a good work ethic in terms of integrity and doing the right thing at the right time. Paul's actually saying that when you work, you work as an act of worship to God. He is the higher standard, the higher authority, the greater boss in heaven. And when we do good work for his glory, he is worshiped. He is glorified. Paul goes on in verse 23 to really nail this down. This this was a verse that actually changed my life. I'll explain that in a minute. Look at verse 23. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, y'all listen to Paul's words here. Very important. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, CEO, school teacher, insurance adjuster, plumber, garbage collector, farmer, student, stay-at-home parent, we could go on all day. Whatever you do, he says. Now, in our society, we struggle with this because we like to create ladders of prestige based on your degree, your diploma, where you went to school, what you were trained in, what your salary is, what your title is, right? We like to position people on those terms. God does no such thing. The things that we care about so often, God couldn't care less. He does not esteem you based on a title or based on your diploma or on your salary. That's why this command is in the Bible. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord and not just for people. You know, I, I mentioned this earlier. There's a big shift that's occurred culturally in how we view work. Maybe in the last 30 years or so, maybe it goes back a little further than that, that the mindset has become work should be fulfilling. Work should give me meaning. My work should make a difference. And as a result, we have a great many people 
searching for, struggling to find a career that meets those criteria. And it's really difficult. Maybe you've tried. And you found it very difficult to find a job that makes you feel like you're somebody. Maybe we as a culture, we've come to believe that work isn't even worth doing unless it satisfies my deep, deep need for meaning and purpose and significance. Now, if you find a job like that, by all means, take it and enjoy it. But that's not Paul's point in Colossians 3. And most of us, frankly, will drive ourselves crazy looking for a job that meets us in those deepest needs of the heart. Because here's the, here's the truth that he's getting at. What gives work its meaning? What gives work its meaning? It's our service to Jesus, period. Whether it feels meaningful, whether anybody notices or applauds us for it on this side of heaven, Paul says that's irrelevant. It's the service that we give to Jesus. That's how the Bible can say, in whatever you do, whatever you do. Y'all, even the very best vocation, the dream job, cannot give you meaning, purpose, significance, and identity. Only God delivers those things to us. That's why anything you put your hands to, anything you put your hands to, can be motivated by Jesus and given to Jesus, done for his glory as an act of worship to him. There's no job too small that God can't be glorified in it. That's good news. Some of us need to hear that today. I I said this verse changed my life. I can remember coming to this verse for the very first time. I was a sophomore in college. I didn't have a job at that point. I was a full-time student. But I had figured out school, at least I thought I had, that I could, I could show up for class, get the syllabus, and size up the class and figure out how much work is required of me to get by. And frankly, that was my attitude in school. I wanted to, I wanted to make good grades. I wanted my parents to be happy with me. I wanted to have a, an impressive resume. But I wasn't so devoted that I was going to give my whole heart to it. I just wanted to know how to get by in class. And then somebody showed me this verse, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart, as for the Lord and not for men. And y'all, this, this hit me like a ton of bricks. Paul says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. See, my standard, I came to realize this as, as a 20-year-old young person, that my standard as a Christian cannot be good enough. What's the minimum acceptable line of good enough? That can't be my standard if I'm a follower of Jesus because I was put in that classroom to serve the Lord. And I was never a true scholar by any means, but I got a lot more serious about school because of Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Because it came home to my heart that I can't just get by here and think that God is pleased with that. I've got to do my best. And y'all, I sti- this verse still haunts me, and I still need it just as much now as I ever did. This is a good verse. You ought to memorize this verse. You tape this to the, to the wall or to the cubicle, wherever you work, you can put it up and, and be reminded consistently, why do I do what, why, what I do? Why am I called to give my best? Right? Not to please men, for Christ. Now that should be enough for Paul to end right there to say we We work for Jesus. That's the right thing to do. That's the Christian thing to do. But do you notice the promise he attaches to verse 24? This is not just a work ethic. This has a promise that anchors it. Verse 24, why do we work for Jesus? He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Uh, I don't know for you what motivates good, hard, honest work. 
Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's a paycheck. Maybe it's health benefits. Maybe we work for a sense of satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment. Maybe you work for promotion and affirmation. Maybe you're working because it provides for your family, and that's your, that's your, your deep root interest. But y'all, you see this right here. There's a higher wage. There's a higher reward at stake. When we work as unto Christ, when we work for the Lord, for His pleasure, for His glory, Paul says you will receive the reward of the inheritance. That means that there is an ultimate reward in the life to come. Regardless of what we receive on this earth, regardless of what acclaim we receive, or regardless of how unnoticed we feel, whether you're high or low on the ladder in your own estimation, there is a reward in the life to come, a glory that we receive from Christ himself. And it's tied in, it's related to how we work on this earth, in, t- in this time and place. Now, I don't know about you, I-, I rarely think of work like that. I rarely think of, and I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to think of heavenly things all the time, but I rarely think about work this way of connecting the earthly duties that we're responsible for with the heavenly glory of Jesus Christ and the reward that he grants to us. But think for a minute about the original context with me. We spoke on this a minute ago. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to slaves. He's writing to people who had no earthly rights in the moment, people who had no real wage to earn and save, These are people who don't have the potential for promotion, and they don't have the opportunity to retire one day on the lake. That was not their lot in life. How precious do you think this promise would have been to them? To say, no matter what happens to you, no matter whether you're treated well or treated poorly, no matter uh, how much money you accrue, or whether you spend your entire life simply working with nothing to show for it in earthly terms, no matter how menial your task in life may be, no matter how unappreciated you may feel, God sees. God sees. And God rewards. To those who use their work as a worship to Him, God will pay you out of His eternal wealth. You will retire comfortably. You just hold on. The eternal grace of Jesus rests upon you. Do you think that promise would have meant something to them? It should mean more to us than it does. It should mean more to me than it does. Because what we're working for, who we're working for, is meant to be Christ. Now, Paul's going to close here with a warning. he's, He's given us a work ethic that is very positive. Look to Christ. But understand there's a flip side to this. You look at verse 25. We need to hear this too. He says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Uh, You know where this hits me when I think about it? We live in an unjust world. We live in a world where sometimes cheaters don't get caught. Some people cheat to get ahead, and they do. It works. Some people steal and they don't get caught and reprimanded for it. Some folks get ahead in their careers through unrighteous and sinful means. They walk all over whoever they have to to get where they're going to go. And it works sometimes. And we lament that. I'm sure you uh, struggle with that as you see people getting ahead who don't deserve it, who don't have the character to sustain it. And Paul says this. Listen, we live to a higher standard as Christians, a higher devotion. 
That means that for us, listen, if we're, if we're lazy in our work just because we can get away with it, if we're dishonest in our work just to get ahead, if we sin in an effort to find the loopholes to an earthly reward, Paul says you will not find favor with God. He will hold us to account for these things. You may get your earthly reward, but you will receive no heavenly reward because integrity is not optional to God. So if you see people getting ahead, we lament that. It's hard to watch, but you don't envy them because ultimately what they receive is simply what they get here and now. And unfair as it may seem, Paul says, you keep your integrity knowing what is to come. Don't fall down. Don't, don't condescend to that level in order to get ahead now. God's got something for you. Now, this is not limited only to servants. Up to this point, that's been Paul's uh, focus, but this is true for everybody, both the call to righteousness and the warning against sin. This applies also to those in authority over others. And that's where we see chapter 4, verse 1, finish the, the thought here. You see this? Masters, bosses, employers, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Roman culture may have withheld rights from these people. But Paul says if you are a Christian, then you restore those rights. That is your duty. If you are a Christian in a place of authority, you live counter-culturally, you are just and fair, you treat them with dignity, those entrusted to your leadership and authority. You treat them honestly and you treat them graciously. Never withhold from them what is due. Because you yourself have a master in heaven. Your authority is a gift. Y'all, when, when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, Pilate made this power play kind of statement. He said to Jesus, don't you know I have authority to crucify you or release you? And Jesus looked at him and said, you would have no authority unless it were given you from above. That's a power play right there. The Son of God correcting a mere man who thought he was something. You have no authority unless God gives it to you. Listen, if you've got people under you at work, you have a great trust. You've been given a great trust. And you are to treat them as one who recognizes, I also live under authority. I have a master in heaven who treats me better than I deserve, who esteems me and gives me dignity who loves me and honors me and never withholds good from me, and therefore I will live in like manner to those he's entrusted me to watch over. That can be very hard at times and difficult, but it's a work ethic given to us from above. You know, I've heard a fellow pastor say this once, that one of the wonderful things about Christianity, one of the great blessings of our faith, is the fact that grace touches nature. Grace touches nature. And here's what that means. Every good, wonderful, lofty thing that we believe, it doesn't just exist up in the clouds somewhere. It affects real life. It changes how we live. What we believe is meant to be integrated into the practical realities of how we live. That's what integrity is. And so grace touches nature. It's not disconnected. If anybody says business is business, faith is faith, then we stand opposed to that mentality. We don't segregate things out. We don't make it something else entirely up in the clouds. But business is business. You don't understand how things have to run down here. 
No, God says you live, you work in such a way that Jesus Christ is esteemed as ultimate in your life. He is held high, he is worshiped, and you treat others around you accordingly, and you will be rewarded in kind. So y'all, listen, we don't, we, we, we don't romanticize work. Work is under the curse. It still is. Uh, there's no dream job out there. I hate to burst your bubble, but there's no dream job out there that's going to satisfy all the deep needs of your heart, that's going to give you a sense of identity, significance, and meaning. No such job exists. Every job frustrates. Every job falls short. Every economy goes through downturns where we can get laid off. Even our dream jobs aren't exempt from that. Now, we are what we are by the grace of Christ. He is our identity. He's the one who loved us and gave up his life for us. And this is the message of Christianity. This is the message of the book of Colossians. We are complete in him. We don't look to work for something that Jesus is meant to give to us. And so by faith in him, we are new people. Everything we need, we have in Christ. And therefore, it's the springboard for us into the way we live. I'm not looking to work to give me something that I don't already have in Christ. No. All identity, significance, purpose, provision, everything is found in him. So now I get to work in a way that reflects completeness, wholeness. Wouldn't that be great? Y'all, few things reveal the new identity in Christ more than how we work. It's how we spend a third of our life. It's how we spend half of our waking hours. What better than to be a Christian who witnesses to the world with a biblical work ethic? Hard work, honest work, my goodness, yes. But a work that honors, glorifies, worships, and esteems Jesus. Paul says that's how we're meant to operate. In whatever God calls you to do, great or small, do it with all your heart. Do it with all your heart. As for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Can we give praise to God for allowing us to experience a faith that is not pie in the sky somewhere far away, but that actually infuses how we think and act and live, that we might be a light to the world in our workplace. Let's pray. Father, we are, are gifted this morning. We're graced um, with a different view of the world. And that's not to our credit, Lord. We know that if we, if we were just left to ourselves to figure this out, then we would, we would just make it up as we go. We might work hard and we might not. We might be deeply committed to what we do, and we might, or we might just kind of hold it loosely, looking, always looking for something better. We might just be in it for the money. We might, we might be in it for, for power and prestige and applause. We, there, there's all sorts of things that might motivate us. But, Father, we thank you that this morning, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a new motivation. We have a new drive. We have a new source of what makes us who we are. And we can work in such a way that we shed light and darkness. We can work in such a way that you, Jesus, drive us, motivate us. You are our reward in what we do. Lord, would you forgive us where we have used work 
for our own ends? Will you forgive us where we've been, if we've been lazy, if we've been dishonest, if we've been, if we've used our authority in abusive ways, if we've treated employees uh, or employers, if we've treated them unfairly, unjustly? Father, we're sinners. We fail. We need forgiveness. But Lord, would would you lead us into a new way? Would you show us through the text this morning that, that we, we are, we, you've put us here to serve Christ? And let that shape, let that reform how we view the workplace and our role in it. Um, Lord, I need this. I need, I need a, a renewing of my work ethic. Lord, would you encourage us in this? Maybe we were raised up to work hard, but with no reason why. Would you point us to Christ as our focus? Maybe we were raised up to look for a dream job and we still haven't found it. Lord, would you show us that there is meaning in whatever we put our hands to right now, that we can do it as as a worship, as an act of worship to you? And Lord, I pray this, in this moment, if, if, we've got, um, if we've got stay-at-home parents in this room who struggle to feel significant, who struggle to feel like what they do matters, like what they do is noticed, would you remind them, Father, that you see, that you hold the reward in your hands, and that their work is meaningful. Would you remind us this morning, if anyone is in this room who is currently unemployed and seeking work um, and and perhaps feeling very discouraged, Lord, would you encourage them this morning that you are their provision, Lord, and that you are the sovereign God who ordains their steps? Would you open an effective door of opportunity for them? Would you allow the church to support them as they do it? Um, Lord, we all need this today. So give us the grace, Lord, to walk as new men and new women in this all-important area of our lives. We thank you uh, for these graces, and we ask, Lord, uh, for the abundant blessing that only you can supply through the mighty and wonderful, precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.